John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Welcome to War of the Rebellion Stories of the Civil War, I am your host, Leon, and this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, The Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861-1865 Campaigns, 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the rank and file. And we're picking up right at Recollections of Company I by Private John C. C.S., The first recruits for Company I came from a local home guard company, which, on its formation several months previous to July 1862, was composed of schoolboys too young for acceptance and regular military companies serving in the field. Richard and William Bailey, two brothers well known in Allegheny City by reason of being fifers in martial bands of local militia companies before the Civil War, were the original promoters, and had secured a number of youths, averaging not over eighteen years of age, to enroll themselves for three years or during the war. Captain Samuel A. McKee, who had served in the war with Mexico, and had been a commander of the Jackson Independent Blues, a popular military company of Pittsburgh some years prior to the Civil War, was also engaged in recruiting a company for the war, and united N.P.W. Gata a citizen backed by the late William Thaw, in efforts to recruit a company. William Logan, a farmer's son living at Boston, Allegheny County, delivered a number of recruits from his home neighborhood to Captain McKee, and out of this union, Company I of the 155th Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers was organized. Captain McKee was made captain. M.P.W. Gata took the first lieutenancy, and Richard Bailey was named as second lieutenant with his brother, William Y. Bailey, appointed orderly sergeant. Lieutenants Gotta and Bailey, before making any military record, broke down physically from the exposure and hardships of the campaign and resigned. William Y. Bailey served as orderly sergeant in the Antietam and Fredericksburg's campaigns with honor, but was also compelled to leave the service, owing to his continued ill health, and was honorably discharged for that reason. No more versatile characters then composed the 100 raw recruits, later known as Company I, could be found in any army. Of diversified nationality, there were boys as young as 14, and men apparently close upon threescore and ten. The strictest Puritan in religious faith and practice often messed and marched side by side with the most rollicking devil-may-care profane souls. Under the benign and gentle discipline of Captain McKee, the company soon became proficient in the duties of a soldier, and obeyed orders promptly. Sergeant Logan applied his skill acquired in the three-month service as drill sergeant to the benefit of the company. Sergeant Luke J. Dooling, an educated gentleman, a brave and efficient soldier, who soon earned the rank of first lieutenant, was a graduate as an enlisted man from the British Army, having served in it during the Crimean War. In manner, 
he was eccentric and odd at times in his deportment. Being much older than the average of the rank and file, his queer actions and spells of solitude and silence attracted as great attention as did his generous treatment of his men. No discount, however, could be had on his fighting qualities, which were exhibited in every battle during his over two years' service in the field with the regiment. His example and advice to the boys of the company in battle was salutary. Sergeant J. K. P. Hunter deservedly rose to the rank of first lieutenant, which was earned by him by his faithful services at Antietam, Fredericksburg, and more especially in the Chancellorsville campaign, in which he was commander of the Brigade Pioneer Corps, rendering valuable services. Among the odd characters who found their way into the ranks of the company was Peter Drury, a well-known individual hailing from the First Ward, Allegheny City. His defective mentality and mature age prevented any hope of his ever acquiring even a slight knowledge of military drill, or of even understanding the simplest duties of a soldier. Peter was, therefore, early excused from all military service and was assigned on probation to the more peaceful employment of Company Cook. In this position, he soon displayed most lamentable ignorance of the duties of Company Chef. Before long, the whole company mutinied and threatened to mob him for his disgraceful failures as a cook, and also for his willful and wanton spoiling of the daily rations entrusted to him. Peter was accordingly relieved of the position of company cook. He was next assigned to the duty of hostler for Captain McKee. Later he served as a mule leader on the march. Poor Peter early realized the dangers of battle, which he scented afar off and always kept out of the enemy's range. Many were the jokes perpetrated on the poor fellow in camp, all of which he accepted with the best of good humor. He was finally, after a year's service, discharged for disability. The itinerary chapters of the regiment treat so fully of each battle that a bare reference to the part taken by Company I is sufficient for the present article. Casualties Killed and Wounded at Fredericksburg, in the charge on Mary's Heights, the company lost four of its bravest spirits, Corporal Charles N. Matthews, Louis Kilgore, Color Corporals Francis Thompson and John Rankin, the last two of whom fell at their posts defending the colors. The long and forced march in the broiling sun on the way to Gettysburg will ever be remembered, because of its severity and its occasioning many to break down and become incapacitated for battle duty, Captain McKee was among those affected by the heat and the severity of the forced marches, and he was compelled to take to the ambulance under orders from the regimental surgeon. The proximity of the battlefield and the sound of artillery firing in advance had a wonderful curative effect on Captain McKee. He insisted, in defiance of the surgeon's orders, on accompanying his company into the impending battle, and was one of the very first to receive wounds as the company was entering the battlefield, on the way to relief of Sickles' Third Corps just before the issue of the recall orders to take position on Little Round Top. Private George W. Wilcox, a brave, patriotic soldier, met his death while scaling Little Round Top at Gettysburg on July 2nd. His exemplary life and noble traits made his death long mourned in the company. Private William P. Brady's death in the Battle of the Wilderness is saddened by the fact that the body was never recovered, 
and that it is not known whether it was consumed in the flames of the burning wood or rescued and buried in an unknown grave. The writer's beloved messmate, Private Amos Boley, was killed in action at Laurel Hill, thus bringing to our military home the horrors of war with special force. Our remaining members of mess felt a longing, quote, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still, unquote, four months after this sad vacancy. In this same battle, a miraculous escape from death occurred to Private Samuel Colbert. He was wounded, and while being carried off in the field, a shell from the enemy's line exploded close to him, a fragment of which struck the rim of his hat, cutting it off as clean as if it had been done with a sharp knife. Beyond a slight shock, however, no injury was sustained by him. The death, the death of Corporal Samuel Keyes was occasioned by a stray shot, which struck him while the company was bivouacked in reserve, where, with guns all stacked and accoutrements unslung, some comrades were napping and others writing letters, all believing the position to be beyond the range of the enemy's missiles. His death was peculiarly sad. He lingered but a few moments, and was heard before expiring to lisp a prayer. Corporal Noah H. Winsel and Private Slyas Henry answered roll call for the last time at Spotsylvania. Both of their bodies lie buried among the unknown. The severity of the action prevented comrades from recovering their bodies. Both were brave soldiers and justly popular with their officers and comrades in the ranks. Death of Captain McKee with vivid recollections crowd the memory as one contemplates the exciting scenes of the all-day skirmish and fighting at Petersburg on the memorable 18th of June, 1864, ending in the Great Charge. How few there were left at the close of that bloody day's work to respond here, as brave Sergeant Logan called the company roll of Company I. Who can ever forget the indelible impression stamped on the memory by the sight of Captain McKee with uplifted sword leading the charge upon the outer fortifications of Petersburg. Also, how every man felt inspired by his action, as with fixed bayonets, they followed the intrepid captain in the charge, until the enemy's withering, direct, and enfilading fire compelled the column to halt, and killed our brave leader, who fell just as the order to withdraw was issued by Lieutenant Colonel Ewing, commanding the regiment. When the smoke cleared away, there exposed on the battlefield, were the bodies slain in the charge. Captain McKee, Privates James A. Rankin, James Ingraham, Nicholas Beale, John Pearson, and Thomas C. Martin, all lying close together. The latter had been on detail duty away from the company, and it was sad to all his comrades that he should meet his death in the first battle in which he had taken part. Because of the enemy sharpshooters and artillery still commanding the position, the bodies of Captain McKee and comrades of Company I, killed in the battle, could not be moved until under the cover of night. Lieutenant James Strong, who later was destined to become the second officer to fall in battle whilst commanding the company, secured a relief squad to rescue the bodies remaining on the field. An attempt to do so before dark was unsuccessful, the enemy's fire being kept up too briskly to allow the removal of the bodies. At nightfall, Lieutenants Strong and Pierce, with Corporal Charles Walter, crawled out to the advanced position on the battlefield where the bodies of Captain McKee and Private James A. Rankin lay. The rescue party 
with stretchers soon rolled the bodies back from the field, avoiding any noise which would attract the fire of the enemy. Graves were dug for Captain McKee and Private Rankin, and their bodies temporarily buried. Colonel Pearson, on learning the recovery of the body of Captain McKee, arranged for its return to Pittsburgh, where the honor of a public funeral with military honors was accorded it. Lieutenant Strong retained the captain's sword until he was able as commander of the company to secure one of his own. Young Rankin's body was later in the war removed for burial in the village graveyard at Boston, near Elizabeth, Pennsylvania. His brother, Samuel G. Rankin, who fell in the Battle of Dabney's Mill some months later, is also buried in the same family lot. Life in Camp Camp life and incidents occurring between battles are proper to relieve the sadness and sorrows of battles. In the long winter evenings in Camp Humphreys, and on the long days of summer bivouacs, Company I always had its share of humor and fun from the jovial spirits composing it. The antics and drolleries of Private Howell Douglas eminently qualified him for a circus clown. Private Samuel Colbert, who would have made an excellent second with him in the circus business, doing acrobatics and trapeze performances, Private David Johnston's rendition of Moore's Irish and Foster's Plantation melodies, almost sufficed to constitute him a whole glee club in himself. In camp, it made him as popular in the concert line as did his excellent record in battle, win for him a reputation as a brave soldier boy. There was the irrepressible Peter Mulville, who for short was nicknamed Mulsey, a wag and a joker of high order. His humor ever contributed to relieve the sorrows and dumps which so often overtook the boy soldier far away from home, father, sister, and sweetheart. Mulsey's appearance and fun-loving disposition was always a sheer cure for nostalgia, the awful medical name for homesickness. An incident illustrative of the quick wit and humor of Mulsey occurs to the writer as worthy of mention in these annals. In camp at Warrington Junction, a progressive euchre party, in those times termed a poker game social, was being held late one winter's evening in the tent of a comrade of Mulsey. Several invited guests from other companies, who, as well as the members of Company I, had just received their pay, were in attendance at this society event. Among the latter was a well-known sporting character and man about town in Pittsburgh, a comrade of Company C for a very short term. He was more famous in camp for expertness in the use of cards than the use of any military weapons. The card game, when near its end, was interrupted by a curious debate. The question was sprung on the players and guests as to what port General William Walker sailed from his famous filibustering expedition in 1859 for Nicaragua. The card party immediately divided on this momentous question, one half asserting that Walker's expedition sailed from Memphis, Tennessee, the other most positively declaring that it shipped from Beaufort, South Carolina. The Company C visiting sport promptly wagered $10 that the expedition sailed from Beaufort, while one of the players, a friend of Molsey's, as promptly took the bet, averring with confidence that Memphis was beyond doubt the port of departure. Molsey at once invented the ingenious story for the benefit of all concerned, that there was a comrade in Company E who had been a cabin boy in 1859 in the ship carrying Walker and his expedition to Nicaragua. It was agreed all around that, as Molsey was not betting himself, and was therefore disinterested, 
that each of the betters would put up the ten-dollar wagers into the hands of Sergeant Tom Dunn of Company C, one of the players who was not betting, to abide the decision of the absent Company E man, who was then on his picket post. Both sides to the wager took pains to interview without delay the picket umpire early in the morning at his post a few miles from camp. Mosey, however, saw the picket first in the interest of the Memphis bet. He explained the joke to the innocent picket which he desired to perpetuate on the Company C player who had wagered the ten dollars on Buford. The surprised picket, who had never heard of Walker or his expedition, complacently agreed with Mosey for a division of the stakes to unhesitatingly, and most positively, to decide in favor of Memphis. Later in the morning, along to the picket post came the Company C wagerer, who lost no time in introducing the subject of the pending wager. Upon being informed by the voracious picket that Walker's port of departure was Memphis, the Company C man rose to the occasion and promptly offered the guileless picket five dollars in cash for a decision in favor of Buford. The conscientious picket, however, promptly accepted the cash, and without hesitation agreed to decide in favor of Buford. A few hours later, in camp, the umpire on return from Pigot formally decided in favor of Memphis, whereupon the ten-dollar wager of the company seaman was at once paid over by Sergeant Dunn to the winner. The stakes thus so fairly won were without delay turned over, together with the five dollars. The intendant bribe paid the picket umpire by the company seaman to Molsey, the host who, as treasurer of the syndicate, expended the amount for settlers' goods for a banquet royal in Company I in honor of the Company C man, the loser of the stakes. At the close of the festivities, Molsey proposed a vote of thanks to the Company C man, whose lost wager on Buford had paid the entire expenses of the feast, and no one enjoyed the joke more than did the Company C man. Death of Captain Strong Lieutenant James Strong who fell mortally wounded at the Battle of Quaker Road, March 29, 1865, proved a worthy successor to the gallant and lamented Captain McKee. Lieutenant Strong had earned the captaincy by devotion to duty and distinguished bravery in every battle. Though at home following the humble calling of a coal miner, Captain Strong early developed ability and military skill of a high order. Whilst born off the battlefield mortally wounded, the contest still raging, he bade the members of his company who had come to his assistance to leave him and return to duty in the ranks, declaring that at his end was so near they were powerless to help him. Lieutenant Strong was a native of Great Britain. He left a wife and six children to mourn his death. He was popular in the regiment and beloved by his comrades. He remarked to Colonel Pearson, who visited him as he lay on the field where his life was fast ebbing away, quote, Tell my boys that I am proud to die for the dear old flag. Unquote. The fate of Private Joseph Peppard, who was badly wounded and fell into the hands of the enemy in the Second Battle of Hatcher's Run, January 1865, and never after to be heard of, was pathetic in the extreme. The wounding and capture of Peppard preyed hard upon his young nephew, Willie Montgomery who was soon destined to give up his life at Appomattox, on April 9th following. Corporal James S. Phillips met his death at his post on the firing line at Hatcher's Run, February 6, 1865. After a long and faithful career, 
participating in twenty engagements, from Antietam to Hatcher's Run, it was peculiarly sad that this brave youth should fall when the close of the war was so near. No more exemplary, moral character, an example than Corporal Phillips ever displayed in camp, on the march, or in battle, could be found in any other army. All this could also be said of the brave Private Samuel G. Rankin, who fell in the same sanguinary battle. On April 1st, 1865, at Five Forks, Color Corporal Thomas McCush, a youth of 18, fell in battle supporting the colors. He had participated with great credit in every battle of the regiment. Genial, witty, brave, companionable, Tom McCush was beloved by the entire regiment. His death in the last battle of the war cast a great gloom over his own company, where the manly traits of this Irish lad were justly appreciated. He yielded up his young life when the success of our arms and the final victory was in sight. No sadder, nor more distressing death occurred in the Civil War than that already mentioned of young William Montgomery, a native of Pittsburgh, aged but fourteen at the date of his death. The story of this youthful patriot's death is admirably described in a contributed article by Sergeant John H. Kerr, and the reader is referred to the same. Sergeant John H. Kerr, after earning deserved promotion to a sergeancy in the ranks of Company I, in the great battles of Antietam, Fredericksburg, and Chancellorsville, was transferred to the Field Ordnance Department by order of General Humphreys. At Gettysburg, and the campaigns following, down to Appomattox, Sergeant Kerr was always found in the field, attending to the important duties of the position assigned him. Sharpshooting Experience Sergeant William Logan, after two years' service in the ranks of the company, accepted a detail with Corporal William Rankin and a newly formed battalion of sharpshooters attached to the 5th Corps headquarters. This organization was formed July 1864 by the order of General Warren and was composed of picked men for special duty in the trenches and defenses in the siege of Petersburg. The sharpshooters all purchased their own firearms. While on duty, they were given great discretion in selecting positions for their deadly work. In most cases, they acted independently, keeping always in the advance with skirmishers or near vedette picket posts. On the morning of April 9th at Appomattox, Sergeant Logan, with a squad of sharpshooters, took position on the advanced skirmish line with the 155th Regiment. He describes the discovery of a group of Confederate officers in plain view and within easy range. The globe telescopic sight on their weapons were of the finest quality and brought all objects close. His detachment were about ready to pick off the group of officers when the flag of truce carried by a Confederate courier was espied crossing toward the Union line. Noticing this action, the sharpshooters withheld their fire as the appearance of such emblems by the rules of war occasioned the suspension of hostilities. They witnessed the approach of the courier to the 155th Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers on the skirmish line and the escort of the Confederate truce-bearer by Sergeant Major William Shore of that regiment through the Union lines. Sergeant Logan also declares that, notwithstanding the passage of the flag of truce through the Union lines, brief skirmishing by the Confederates and answered by our skirmishers was kept up for some time afterwards, until General Griffin dispatched Major George M. Loglin, of his personal staff, to deliver the final order to each regiment on the skirmish line to cease firing. 
both armies then suspended hostilities. Sergeant Logan learned soon after that the group of Confederate officers who had, but a short time previous, so exposed themselves to the sharpshooter's deadly aim, were Generals Longstreet and Gordon and their staffs, whose commands were directly opposite the position occupied by the 155th and other 5th Corps regiments on the skirmish line. These generals were watching the courier whom they had dispatched with the flag of truce to Lieutenant General Grant, announcing General Lee's acceptance of the formal terms of surrender proposed in the correspondence between Generals Grant and Lee. Corporal Charles Walter was one of the youngest and also one of the most delicate youths in appearance in the company at his enlistment. He endured the three years of arduous, strenuous life of active service much better than did many of the men appearing to be more stalwart and robust. Weighted down with his knapsack and blanket, cartridge box with sixty rounds of ammunition, gun and bayonet, haversack and canteen, young Walter stood the long forced marches of the Antietam and Gettysburg campaigns, and straggled less than any other man in the company. His fearlessness in battle attracted the notice of his superiors, and led to his promotion by Colonel Pearson to membership in the Color Guard. There, with the brave color corporals Mackin, Curry, Ewer, McCush, Fleming, and McPherson, he served with honor under the intrepid color sergeant Tom Marlin, from the wilderness to Appomattox. Corporal Walter relates an interesting reminiscence from his diary of the roll call of the company the morning before reaching the battlefield of Gettysburg, when the forced marches occasioned great straggling among the troops. Captain McKee had General Meade's order to the army read to his company. This order severely denounced straggling, and threatened the penalty of death to any soldier guilty of the same to avoid participation in the coming battle. As the roll call of the company I showed about half of the company absent straggling, being unable to keep up on the severe marches, Captain McKee, who was not much given to humor, announced to the members of the company present that, under the orders just read, it was undoubtedly much safer for the men to go into battle with their companies, where they would be some chance of escape from death, than to straggle, as, under General Meade's drastic orders, stragglers not up for the battle would undoubtedly be shot, there being no chance of escape. Among the faithful, brave, and popular comrades of Company I recalled by the writer, as ever ready for duty in camp and battle, were R. Leander Williamson, wounded at Hatcher's Run, Leopold and Chris, Wool, Martinell, Walters, H.W. Heasley, Oliver M. Heath, G. Lee Goulin, and the Colbert brothers. Ralph Bradley, one of the youngest privates, after a service from Antietam to mine run in the field, broke down in health under the strenuous life, and was transferred in March 1864 to the Veteran Reserve Corps, in which he served faithfully until honorably discharged. Lieutenant James D. Pierce commanded the company on its final homeward march and farewell reception and drill in Pittsburgh, and in the welcoming ceremonies to the regiment by the municipal authorities. Honored and loved by all of the command for his three years of faithful duty with the company in the field, no more heartfelt godspeeds or affectionate farewells were given to any comrade than were bestowed on Lieutenant James D. Pierce by the company on his disbandment in 1865. Officers Transferred from 62nd Pennsylvania Volunteers In July... 1864, the return home of the 62nd Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers by reason of expiration of the term of service occasioned the transfer to Company I of a captain, 
of a captain, four sergeants, and three corporals from that regiment. They were all veterans who had re-enlisted and were tried and true soldiers. This transfer made Captain John T. Bell the last captain of the company, and, as stated, he proved an able and brave soldier in command of the company from July 14, 1864 to Appomattox, April 9, 1865. These transfers from the 62nd Regiment, whilst unobjectionable as soldiers or as comrades, proved unjust to many deserving commissioned and non-commissioned officers of the 155th by retarding their well-earned promotion. This injustice was most noticeable in preventing the well-deserved promotion of Lieutenant Strong, who assumed command of the company on the death of Captain McKee in battle, and also in retarding the well-earned promotion of Lieutenant Pierce. Sergeants John H. Kerr and William Logan, both faithful non-commissioned officers from the organization of the company, Sergeant Thomas C. Anderson, one of the veterans transferred from the 62nd Regiment, distinguished himself in battle. He was recommended by Colonel Ewing, commanding the regiment, and approved by General A. L. Pearson, brigade commander, whose promotion for gallantry displayed in action. The writer regrets his inability so long after the close of the war, and absence of diaries and reminders other than his feeble memory that he cannot do justice to all the devoted patriots who served in Company I, and touched elbows in days gone by. But for further particulars, he refers the readers to the carefully compiled and revised roster of Company I to be found in the appendix, as constituting the company's roll of honor. Record Enrollment Casualties, etc. of Company I Killed and Died of Wounds Captain Samuel A. McKee, Petersburg, Virginia, June 18, 1864. First Lieutenant James Strong, Quaker Road, Virginia, March 29, 1865. Corporal Francis Thompson, Fredericksburg, Virginia, December 13, 1862. Corporal Charles Matthews, Fredericksburg, Virginia, December 13, 1862. Corporal Samuel Keyes, Spotsylvania, Virginia, May 12, 1864. Corporal Thomas McCush, Color Corporal. Five Forks, Virginia, May 1, 1865. Corporal James J.S. Phillips, Hatcher's Run, Virginia, February 6, 1865. Private Amos Boley, Laurel Hill, Virginia, May 8, 1864. Private Nicholas Beale, Petersburg, Virginia, May 18, 1864. Private Samuel J. Denning, Peoples Farm, Virginia, May 30, 1864. Private William Gold, Peoples Farm, Virginia, May 30, 1864. Private Alfred Gold, Peebles Farm, Virginia, September 30, 1864. Private John P. Hardy, Boyton Plank Road, Virginia, October 27, 28, 1864. Private James Ingram, Petersburg, Virginia, June 18, 1864. Private Louis Kilgore, Fredericksburg, Virginia, December 13, 1862. Private William Montgomery, Appomattox, Virginia, April 9, 1865. Private Thomas C. Martin, Petersburg, Virginia, June 18, 1864. Private John Pearson, Petersburg, Virginia, June 18, 1864. Private James A. Rankin, Petersburg, Virginia, June 18, 1864. Private Samuel G. Rankin, Hatcher's Run, Virginia, February 6, 1865. Private John Rankin, Jr., Fredericksburg, Virginia, December 13, 1862. Private George W. Wilcox, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, July 2, 1863. Wounded in Action 
Private Dennis Andrews, Wilderness, May 5, 1864. Private Charles L. Butterfield, Wilderness, May 5, 1864. Private William G. Clark, Cold Harbor, June 3, 1864. Private James G. Conway, Spotsylvania Courthouse, May 12, 1864. Private Samuel Colbert, Laurel Hill, May 8, 1864, and Gettysburg, July 2, 1863. Private Robert Colbert, Petersburg, June 18, 1864. Private L. Howell Douglas, Spotsylvania Courthouse, May 12, 1864. Private George L. Graft, Hatcher's Run, February 6, 1864. Private George W. Haney, North Anna River, May 25, 1864. Private Robert Hunter, Petersburg, June 18, 1864. Private William T. Jones, Five Forks, May 1, 1865. Private Robert Lambie, Wilderness, May 5, 1864. Private Gustavus Lee Gulun, Petersburg, June 18, 1864. Private Peter J. Myers, Quaker Road, March 29, 1865. Private John McGarry, Petersburg, June 18, 1864. Private Robert L. Williamson, Wilderness, May 5, 1864, and Hatcher's Run, February 6, 1865. Private Martin L. Walters, Quaker Road, March 29, 1865. Private Leopold Wool, Fredericksburg, December 13, 1862. Private Michael Zafut, Peebles Farm, September 30, 1864. Missing in action? Killed. Corporal Noah Winsel, Spotsylvania, Virginia, May 12, 1864, with 62nd Pennsylvania Volunteers. Private William P. Brady, Wilderness, Virginia, May 5, 1864. Private Silas Henry, Spotsylvania, Virginia, May 12, 1864. Private Joseph Peppard, Hatcher's Run, Virginia, February 6, 1864. Private August H. Yaley, Fredericksburg, Virginia, December 13, 1862. Died of Disease Corporal Samuel Reynolds, died October 18, 1864. Private Joseph Adams, died October 26, 1862. Private Hiram France died December 19, 1862. Private James McLuhan died January 3, 1863. Recapitulation Total enrollment, 157. Killed and died of wounds, 22. Missing in action, 6. Died of disease, 4. Officers resigned, 3. Discharged for wounds and disabilities, 38. Discharged at expiration of term, 2. Transferred to Veteran Reserve Corps, 12. Transferred to other organizations, 24. Deserted, 9. Veterans and recruits mustered out by general orders, 9. Not on mustered out rolls, 5. Wounded in action, 19. Wounded and missing, who never joined company, 3. Mustered out with the regiment, 23. And that's the end of Company I. Beginning next week, we will do with the colors reminiscence of Company K by Color Sergeant Thomas M. Martin. If you're a Patreon member, we are also doing the company history that they wrote for just that specific company if you want some more intimate details. If one of these little 
company sketches really interests you, then you're going to love the company history that we're reading for Patreon members as it goes into much more in-depth detail that is written about the daily lives of the men. In fact, one whole chapter that we recently covered reads just like it was from somebody's journal that they wrote on day-to-day basis of what was happening in their lives. So, excellent look into the soldiers' lives. A little bit more focused than this, but these are pretty good too. Man, these company I-boys, they had it rough, judging by their numbers compared to some of the others. A lot less people who died from sickness in this company, but just more things happened to them, judging by those ending numbers. Only 23 guys out of 157. Just so many disabilities and wounds and transfers and everything else. If you are a Patreon member, you're going to have three episodes to go through this week, so enjoy that. I'm working on a couple of other things. I have also been wearing my merch. I thought I would wear it for a while to find out how good it really is. And I will be posting pictures on that this week. This weekend, amongst some other things. So, with that, take care of yourselves. Have a great weekend. See you in the next episode. Bye bye. John Brown was John the Baptist of the Christ we are to see. Christ who of the bondman shall the liberator be And soon throughout the sunny south the slaves shall all be free For his soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah For his soul Marching on The conflict that he heralded He looked from heaven to view On the army of the Union With its flag red, white, and blue And heaven shall sing with anthems Or the deed they mean to do For a soul Marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah For a soul is marching on Soldiers of freedom, then strike while strike ye may The death blow of oppression in a better time and way The dawn of old John Brown has brightened in the day And his soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah
marching on for his soul. 